So we recorded this conversation with Curtis on Wednesday, January 6th. Obviously, there was a lot happening that day. Um, We wanted to begin this podcast with a very clear statement about our position on the happenings of January 6th. So the members of this podcast are horrified but not surprised by the insurrection on the Capitol by white supremacists. We also believe the domestic and international election auditors who have declared the election valid, as well as the qualified journalists and state election officials who have confirmed that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will be our president and vice president. We also want to acknowledge that we live in two Americas. Um, The actions of police forces across America during the summer were very, very, very different (laughs) than the reactions that we saw on Wednesday. So we also stand in solidarity with our friends and family members and community members who are people of color. Um, And we understand that we will never really understand what it's like to be you in America. But we will continue to repent and unpack our white privilege. We will continue to have conversations and share stories and say the names. And that's our promise to you. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our podcast at the Rectory. I'm Anne. I'm Katie. And I'm Emily. We are three friends who at some point or another all lived in a tiny blue house in Cincinnati that we have affectionately named the Rectory. And together, we have filled it with... Memories. Long hours of PhD work. Parties. And a saggy three-legged couch we just can't seem to part with. I like that. Musical sting. Oh my gosh. How's everyone's day been? <laughs> Anything to ever- note? How's the news been treating everyone? Holy it's- moly. Seems <laughs> like I have a candle lit for um, aromatherapy and also for prayer. Um, <laughs> I thought that was a glass of booze. I thought that was a brandy sniffler. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. That's on fire. I can get uh, wine in about three seconds, and I might. I So I tried the deepest, reddest wine, but I just, like, I don't know. I saw it, and it looked so pretty. Such a deep, luscious purple. And, you know, on the bottle, they always talk it up. Like, oh, it's got, like, undertones of plum and blackberries. And it sounded amazing, and it was a brand that I liked other types of wines from them and so i was like i'm gonna just try this i don't know yolo like i was in a mood last night I went, there he is i'm back i hated oh. it so i'm sorry you hated it <laughs> it's just like dry and not very fruity we're talking about wine and any other oh uh fun fact my brother-in-law bought an amazing and i am not a scotch person but amazing is this single malt whiskey? Sorry. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he left it here. He <gasps> left it here. And I was like, Alex, you left your fancy bottle here. And he's like, I know. It's for next time I come up. 
So yeah. I have that in my cupboard. And after a day like today, I might pour me some super fancy whiskey. Yeah. What is like yeah. the alcohol content of an average whiskey? 40 to 45%. Dang. Okay. <laughs> the wine I had last night was like 13%. And I was like, whoa, like pushing it. <laughs> right on the edge. <laughs> Yeah, Anne brought out the fancy whiskey, Curtis, right as you froze up. And what was the mm -hmm. word on it, Anne, that maybe Curtis can tell us what it means, Speyside? I think it's just, it's like mm -hmm. Speyside, single malt. Yeah, uh, scotch scotches are identified by what region the distillery's in because that affects flavor. So Islas are the ones that are really smoky and peaty. And then you have Highlands, which are mellow and sweet, Speysides, which are kind of mellow and sweet and mild. Nice. Well, Curtis, I'm going to do um, uh, an intro here, and uh, then we'll kind of get into conversation. Does that sound good? Yeah, great. Hey, everybody that's joining us today. Um, we have a great guest on the pod this evening. Um, if I had to describe this gentleman, I would say he is... Uh, Anne's already laughing. He's the Ron Swanson of Northwest Ohio. He has a very particular set of skills. Uh, he has multiple degrees. He's on his way to at least his second grad degree. And um, he actually, his best accomplishment is that he was born about 23 months after me uh, out of the same womb. This is my brother, Curtis Random. Hi, Curtis. Hi. There he is. And you already know um, Anne and Emily because you've been to the house many times. In fact, you've stayed the night here. Um, you've helped with many a project, including making sure that we have the correct security on our doors. Can I tell a funny story about Curtis at the rectory? Yes, this is very yeah. cool. This yeah. is something yeah. that's come up before. So we ha we're having a party, and Curtis had come early because he drove from Columbus. Um, and he was like kind of helping set up and our house kind of like the rooms are connected, but it's not open concept where you can like see everything at once. There's a little bit of like a hallway and it kind of goes in a circle. And so I'm used to having obviously Katie in the house and then like dogs in the house. I have a bed. Curtis is this just like gigantic redheaded man just like walking through the house. So I kept losing track of him. So he would like go into the basement for something and I would, I would forget that he was in the basement and he'd come bursting out of the basement. <laughs> terrified me. And then he went to the car for something and I lost track of him and I didn't know he was outside. He came just like waltzing into the front door and I was just like, Curtis, you're gonna, I'm just gonna die. <laughs> so it was absolutely hysterical. So that's one of the memories I have where you're just like, you're going and I'm just like, where? <laughs> Who's coming out of the basement? What horror story? Who's breaking through our front door? It's just Curtis. Anyway, so Curtis is an exceptionally tall and broad-shouldered gentleman, um, but is amazingly light of foot, so he can sneak up on you. I think, I can't remember. I think in college, maybe people gave me a nickname. I want to say it was the ghost or something like what? that. That I would just appear. I don't know. I think it's just part of the same thing where I walk quietly. 
Curtis, you actually have had a number of nicknames over the course of your life. I think our family has uh, variously referred to you as Viking, amongst other names, which I think the red beard comes into this. And then your law school friends. Yeah, he went to law school. He graduated and he passed the bar. His law school friends called him Door Kicker. I think because of your time with, uh, was it alcohol, tobacco, and firearms? Or I always get it wrong. No, it was the DEA. Uh, I interned with the DEA. And I got to go okay. along to several uh, warrant services where doors did break. Uh, there, was, there was no one home. They knocked and said warrant and all that. But we, I got to go inside and help search. Yeah. So Curtis has uh, interned with the, just say it again, Drug Enforcement. Administration. Administration. He was in the National Guard. He has his law degree. He is a black belt in Taekwondo and an Eagle Scout. And you are about three, four months away from getting a second grad degree. What is that? I'm doing a master's in applied statistics. And it's a program that straddles between the math department and the business department. Okay. Um, it's, it's pretty mathy, um, but the, a lot of the concepts are, are things that are taught in business, like optimization, uh, using quantitative methods for decision making. Um, so it, our program lives in both departments. So Curtis, I one thing that I wanted to do with that introduction was demonstrate that um, you have this enormous range of skills that you have cultivated like over three and a half decades of your life. And that's really been deliberate. We talk a lot on this podcast about the Enneagram. I'm not sure how familiar you are with that, but I know that you know your um, Myers-Briggs designation, uh, which I kind of referenced in the, the Ron Swanson uh, remark. But can you tell us, because your Myers-Briggs really is related to the acquisition of skills and knowledge and expertise. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, so I'm an ISTP, and like when you go on websites that tell you what fi different fictional characters are, they all put Ron Swanson in the ISTP also. <laughs> um, you enjoy working um, working with your hands and with tools and like mastering tools and skill sets. You, you can gain mastery and better if you're okay working solitary for a long time. So it's kind of funny when I see, uh, I enjoy metal music and when I see metal band members interviewed, like I can really relate to their personality because they're all kind of seem mellow and introverted, at least for the most part. And it's <laughs> different than you might expect, but that it makes sense. Yeah. Why does it make sense? Um, from just from the perspective of that, what, what the personality of people is like who can spend that solo time, Folk laser focused on one task and mastering it, like getting really good at guitar. Is there a particular skill set that you have cultivated of which, like, you're really proud and that maybe, um, like, influences the way you are you in the world in a way that you really value, if that makes sense? Um, I think that would be my military service. Okay. Because it, each day, or at least most days, we kind of have to 
if we want to get a lot done, we have to force ourselves to keep working on something when we'd rather quit or make a hard decision. And kind of all of all of being in the military is doing the uncomfortable thing, getting up extra early, not falling out of the run when you're running with a really fast group and you you'd rather be done running. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, quite often if I feel like quitting something that I'm working on, I, I just remember my time in the military and I'm like, what, what would they think if I quit on this? And it helps. With the, with the perspective of time, can you kind of see like, wow, I've really, I've grown in this aspect of my decision-making or I've become wiser in some way. I think the main way I've, I've become wiser is just to know myself better. So I started law school because I wanted to join the FBI or maybe work for a prosecutor's office because I was just really interested in crime. And um, I kind of didn't pay any attention to what my personality traits were that would influence what kind of work I did the best. I guess lessons that are learned the hard way are learned the best. Yeah. So I think that through all that hard learning, I'm on the right track right now. And that's like, I feel like that's what we talked a lot about on this podcast is people have a path that they have in their heads and then life happens or things happen, but they, they ultimately get to a place where they're in their truest, like their truest to themselves. Um, but we all have that journey. That's like a little bit rocky and a little bit sticky that we kind of have to unpack. Or like, as you said, you have gotten to know yourself in your skills and your talents and you've slowly kind of like <laughs> um kind of ticked along until you've really got this in your um crosshairs where you're like this is you know this is the thing you dialed it in there's an analogy i thought of several years ago making this decision and it's like if your car is out of gas you could you could push it kind of sideways or at an angle and it's not going to go nearly as far per the amount of effort you put in uh, as if you, you know, push it in a way that's aligned with its wheels. Now, some people have a dream and they're like, I really, really want to push that car sideways and they <laughs> dedicate their whole life to it and move it a few inches. And if that, if that's really what they want to do, then if they're happy with that choice, then great. But I think the other, the other way makes a lot of sense too. You know, Curtis, you said, and I can affirm this, that the whole family sees you involved in this degree work um, as being much closer aligned to your true self. And thus we feel like we see you as being much like happier. Um, it, just the way that you talk about your life and the way that we interact with you and you see you. But I will say, and I have said this to many people, that I think the truest, like lightest, brightest version of you that I ever see is when you are uncling you are just so like tuned into the needs and the um, kind of the logic of little people. And you are so conscious of their like boundaries and um, concerns. And it is so, such a pleasure to like watch someone succeed at such a high level with tiny person. Yeah. And I think maybe part of that is, is being an introvert and being, maybe more sensitive to interactions with people that I don't 
like interactions that I don't like or that make me uncomfortable. So I've kind of learned to do a lot of observing and reading people's signals as to what, what they want out of a situation. And, um, you know, when, when I'm with the niece and nephew, I want them to be happy and I want them to interact with me. So I tried to facilitate that by like reading the room effectively and seeing what it is they want to do and not like try to force them to play a game that I came up with or, or whatever. I love that. I love that. Like able to translate your experience and being able to protect like the personhood of others. And I feel like through your service in, you know, the armed forces through being a lawyer through all these different things, like that's something that's a thread also in you, you, you champion, <clears throat> not only like what they're interested in, but also their bodies and kind of demonstrating the importance of consent, even when they're so little, you don't have to hug me if you don't want to. Yeah, that's really important, important for little kids. Um, I think Anne had a good laugh about this once, but um, we've talked many times on the podcast about our neighbor kids being so interested in the dogs and that they just get so, as we all did when we were small children, even big humans, so excited about the dogs that they can kind of get, and sadly, I only have the one currently, they get so up in Bennett's face and are so excited. And I keep trying to coach them, you know, like, you know, when you approach a dog, like you do it slowly and uh, Bennett likes to be pet under his chin and not over top of his head. And I think Anne had a good laugh one day because I said something about respecting the dog's feelings. Was that what it was, Anne? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I think yeah. that's also a good message for them to hear because that's also true messaging about them. Yeah. Well, and it's also like, Curtis, you're talking about observing the world. It's also teaching them how to observe. Like Bennett is crawling under a car trying to get away from you. Like if you really want something and that something is like physically trying to flee your presence, what are you doing? You know, how, how do you build in those mechanisms that like, oh, this isn't working out. He looks really scared. Maybe I should stop. Um, so even that is like, let's look at Bennett. Does Bennett look happy right now? Mm -hmm. No, what can we do differently? It's all part of learning. And I think you, you brought up an important other skill right there, which is introspection. Like if this situation isn't great, what, how do I have control over that? You know, how am I causing it to, to be this way? And you know, what can I change what I'm doing to make it better? Not just like, you know, oh, why is that dog being weird? <laughs> just a weird dog, I guess. <laughs> the world is full of weird dogs. That is also true. Have you actively worked on being more introspective or is this like kind of come naturally? Um, maybe I sort of came by part of it naturally just by being sensitive and just kind of acutely aware of embarrassment, I think. So I have, like when the interactions haven't gone well, I have been aware that there's some course correction needed rather than, hey, I'm, I'm doing great, I'm unaware. And then I think the other part of that kind of has to come with some, like just being honest with yourself. Like if, if things, if something needs to be changed, there's something I can do about that. Or um, 
you know, not not like blaming the world or uh, other people. There's a there's an author I really like who was um, in he was in Navy Special Operations. His name is Jocko Wilnick. Wilnick, I think. Um, and he wrote a book called Extreme Ownership. And that name refers to like the skill of owning every everything that you do and every result, um, everything that you fail to do or succeed, owning it and asking yourself what I can do differently, what I can change about what I'm doing rather than blaming outside forces. So Curtis, can you synthesize, I sent you the words of Ralph Waldo Emerson, correct? About mm -hmm. what is a success? Can you grapple with that question for us? Do you have an idea of what a success, like a person who is a success in your vision looks like? When I first finished reading it, I thought that, I don't know if I can add anything to that that really says it all. You know, I really agree with that. <laughs> so I'm, yeah, I'll kind of say what I think success is, but it'll probably overlap a lot. The other thing I thought about is the Rudyard Kipling poem, If. Ooh. Or I'm not going to read very much of it, um, but it starts, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting, or be lied about, don't deal in lies, or being hated, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. And it goes on and on. And the, the last line is, um, you'll be a man, my son. So it's his idea of what it is to be a man, which I think broadly you can say a person. Wow, he matched us literary giant for literary giant. I was not expecting that. So yeah, I think that description's really good. And the other thought I had was um, there are certain times in your life where you are really honest with yourself and like all like it's really easy to make excuses and say, well, I had to make that decision because of such and such circumstance. Um, but sometimes all that falls away and you can really judge yourself on what you've done. And when those times come, if you have done what you think was the right thing or the, the best thing, or the best thing you could have done at the time, then I think that's what success is. For our parting gift this week, we got an extra bonus conversation with Curtis to talk about his favorite film genre, horror, and why it should be yours too. When people find out, Curtis, that I enjoy this genre of um, media, they are surprised, but I feel like it has a lot to offer to, to the arts in general and to a wider audience. So is it okay if I ask you about this topic? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm excited to talk about horror movies. I think it's kind of normal for kids to maybe have a little bit of fascination in the macabre and I never grew out of mine. Really my first memory of watching horror movies was on a trick or treat night and I'm pretty sure it was AMC was doing a, um, a marathon of 
classic or older horror movies and I watched the anthology, the Amicus Studios anthology, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. <laughs> what a great name. And it, I loved it. And um, I was like, I need to find more like this. Uh, I just thought it was really cool. Um, it was an anthology, I think four short-ish stories. Um, so there was a lot to not get bored with, I guess, a lot of variety. Mm -hmm. um, it was filmed beautifully, like these gothic sets and um, crazy monsters and costumes. And yeah, I just loved everything about it. Um, so I think the Universal Monsters uh, are a good place to start. Universal, Frankenstein, Dracula, um, not too much to horrify people, but very well told stories. And the monsters uh, signify things that I think we can relate with sadness and solitude, especially uh, Frankenstein's monster. Horror and humor go really well together in, if it's done right. Um, Katie and I really like the ghost and Mr. Chicken. Don Knotts. Um, and then if to get a little bit more, like maybe more gruesome, a little scarier, uh, the Hammer Studios horror films are really good. Um, the Horror of Dracula is the classic Christopher Lee oh. Dracula film. I watched Brides of Dracula recently. It's great. A lot of beautiful castles and costumes. The Dr. Fibes films or anything with Vincent Price <laughs> are a fantastic way to start. Uh, one thing all these movies have is that they really are made with love and care by the filmmakers. They aren't just um, the money grabs for the studio. You know, someone had some ideas for someone wrote the story, someone lovingly crafted these sets and these costumes, and they're just done with, uh, you can tell the effort went into them. Mm. I like how you were describing them, because I think a lot of people at me um, kind of think that like horror is like the blood and guts and the kind of screaming stuff, and like that's what people like. But you're really talking about like the intention and the skill and like the artistry and the story that goes into that and i think you know like i've been guilty of and katie has cured me of kind of painting with a broad brush like horror but really kind of investing in just like excellent craft excellent story craft thanks for bringing that up for our listeners who might also have that kind of gut reaction of like mm, no it's scary my pleasure if you really get into it there's a lot of artistry and a lot of really interesting ideas that can be explored in horror movies. That's what I wanted to, to ask you about. That I don't think that I really picked up on that, Curtis, until maybe my second time watching Rosemary's Baby. I think that was the first horror movie where I went, oh my gosh, this is telling me something um, that I'm afraid of, that it doesn't have to do with monsters. It's like, it's, it's about patriarchy and the fear that there's a whole system. It's not just everybody, you know, is a dick. It's that the whole system is aligned against you and they are going to get you. The movie that really, really stands out to me as like the gold star of this is, um, get out. Um, because I, because listener i am a woman it was like oh yeah rosemary is you know the patriarchal system is against romary of course i get that i'm a woman but watching get out in the midst of trying to understand 
like racial trauma and what it means to um, live in a white world when you aren't, Get Out finally lit a whole bunch of light bulbs for me. And I felt like the fact that it was a film and the filmmaker is not only asking us to see through the eyes of the protagonist, I'm sorry, I don't remember his name, but is kind of taking it as a given that we will He's not preaching at us. He's just saying, of course you're seeing through the eyes. Oh, that's interesting. Speaking of get out, seeing through the eyes. Of course you align yourself with this hero. That's how I'm gonna get my message to you. I think you're hitting on something that really um, is something great about the horror genre. It's that it, it uses feelings of fear and disgust and loathing to make you pay attention to something and oh. to make you uh, empathize. Yeah. To maybe someone from a group that you're not a member of or in some other way wouldn't have em uh, empathized. Yeah. So was I the only person that grew up in a Christian household that did not approve of horror movies? Like my parents were wary even of like Scooby-Doo what because they felt that oh yes no 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 like they had huge reservations about letting me watch like scooby-doo on zombie island um because witchcraft and we don't know about this not very right. christian uh yeah i don't know just interesting to think about what that means in the context of the fact that horror, like adult horror movies so often do reveal like the darker side of society and explore things that maybe you don't want to look at and truths that you don't want to see. And what does it mean that Christians want to steer away from that a lot of the time? But we're totally chill with me reading to my heart's content about like real life horrors, like the Holocaust, you know? I was all up in the Holocaust section of the library. Uh, mm -hmm. probably way too young of an age mm -hmm. my parents were totally fine with it because oh like that's history but then when it comes to like you know witchcraft films or like horror flicks and stuff like that it's interesting that you bring up witchcraft because there's kind of a pattern that i've noticed with um, anything with the devil or a cult or a witchcraft kind of in that wheelhouse is there was mm -hmm. a in movies, there was a certain point up until which it wasn't all that taboo. I think that even in um, the Ghost and Mr. Chicken, it's the lo what the local occult society or something that are these nice yep. old ladies that want to help investigate the house. There was a certain point, maybe when the uh, Satanic Panic happened, and yeah. um, the eighties, and church camp was telling me to smash my heavy metal tapes with a hammer. Yeah, literally something I was told. And you know, sure. it's interesting that you bring up Emily um, about religion because I would argue that one of the most explicitly religious genres of film is uh, is horror. In fact, oh, exactly. um, horror is willing to take that there is a moral universe out there, that there is right and wrong, and that God exists as truth. I wonder if also like the history versus horror thing is like there's something kind of for people to interpret like history as like kind of flat like this is just a fact whereas horror yeah. is like an active artistic 
critique. I was thinking, Curtis, when you were talking about when I read Dracula for the first time in my like undergrad Victorian literature class, and my professor just like exploded it when she started talking about um, anxieties about um, colonialism and the return of the other, um, anxieties about women's sexuality and like containment of disease. And I was like, wait, wait, wait. I thought I was, I thought I was reading a book about a vampire. And now you're telling me it has all these like layers and there are laws that we can look at that were enacted that this book is talking, like speaking back to. That's awesome. Yeah. And like, that reminds me, there's an Italian uh, horror and giallo director I really like called Lucio Fulci. And of course in Italy in the seventies, the Catholic church had a lot of political power and he um, was very much a cynic and in a lot, a lot of his movies, there are themes of uh, maybe the killer is a priest or something's being covered up or child abuse. And he would get in a lot of trouble in Italy for, for making these films. But today they're still loved as great horror movies and great mysteries. Yeah, it's almost the safe way to speak back to power. We have a creature feature about it, about white supremacy. Right. Well, guys, it's 8.15. And I want to be mindful of Curtis's time because he is a, a steady and man at this point. But, uh, <laughs> Curtis, usually at the end, we uh, go around the the table here, the metaphorical table, and just talk about something that like is giving us life recently. And it's often it's often media that we are consuming, um, that sort of thing. It's not usually too schmaltzy of an answer that we give. But um, Anne usually doesn't want to go first, but I'm curious. Do you have, is this what, do you have something good? Besides that whiskey that your brother-in-law left at the house? <laughs> <laughs> Which I did not drink, Alex. I did, I was tempted. Um, oh, oh, I know, because I had to do it to calm myself down um, after all the stuff that was happening today. I was getting just really thrown. Um, there's an Instagram account that I follow called Black Liturgy. I was just like a centering practice in kind of the midst of everything. Let me see if I can just read one. Um, so it's like, inhale, God, it's hard to see you moving. Exhale, uh, stir my soul so that I can see. Um, inhale, the promise is coming. Exhale, I don't have to wait alone. So I was just doing some of that, and I, I was feeling better today, and I lit a candle and talked to you guys. So definitely not feeling as shaken up. But, yeah, that was something that really was giving me life. Mm. I made some good beef stew today. Time and effort equals deliciousness. Yeah. Yeah, it smells great in here, said the vegetarian. Really, I walk in the door and I'm like, what's happening? It's like magic. Oh, that's right. You gave up a thing that's really delicious. Dang it. You're made of meat. <laughs> You're made of meat. Um, I had two false starts on uh, trying some media that the old, you know, algorithm was trying to feed to me and I watched, I think eight minutes of one and a minute and a half of the other. It was like, no, not having it. Um, but Emily and I watched an amazing documentary last night. It was fascinating. Um, it's called Icarus. It won an Oscar and knows about this apparently. And it's interesting because it starts as a man doing a documentary about something else. And he ends up being 
part of the uncovering of a statewide conspiracy, international conspiracy to uh, cheat at sports, which had basically life and death consequences for dozens of people. Um, Icarus. So that really, that really did it for me last night. Um, when I get tired of studying, I like to just go out and find a place to walk. Sometimes in the woods, sometimes in the neighborhood. There are some beautiful parks here and up near Toledo. Um, it's places that I used to walk in law school because I went to uh, law school in Toledo, some woodland parks. So yeah, I've really been enjoying my hikes. Curtis, this has been so much fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. I had a blast. All right. Thank All you. Right. Bye. Bye, everybody. Have a Bye, good Kurt. evening. Thank you for coming. Bye, Bye Anne.